Holy and gracious God, we thank you that we come to hear a word from you. Having heard the words of the Apostle Paul, we pray that you would continue to speak to us and that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. Amen. Well, we find ourselves in our last of the uh, series, The Church Is Not. We've covered some ground together of how we've talked about the church is not earned. We've talked about how uh, the church is not a country club. We've talked about how last week on Mother's Day, how the the church is not self-serving, but the church goes out and essential quality is to serve. And this week, I think, uh, comes to both uh, an end of it, but also a very important point. And I'm going to talk a lot more about this later. And that is to say, the church is not the savior. The church is not the savior. Um, Because if you don't know that we have different personality types in our life, Um, one of the things I do and I I find enjoyment out of it, although it takes great frustration when you're in the midst of it, is uh, the first couple years of marriage can also last later on in life, too. I remember when I was uh, in North Carolina, we would do this uh, weekend retreat with the uh, Presbyterian Church across the street and the uh, psychology unit of the, uh, well, not psychology unit, but the therapy center at the University of North Carolina. And we partnered together to host this newlywed kind of or preparatory class, premarital counseling. And I had the gift of teaching a class about the difference between levelers and editors in a relationship. And uh, this is a, a kind of a binary generalization, but we talked about how people have different ways of engaging in conflict. Did you know that? Uh, you have some that kind of take it back and kind of let things ride, may, figure out their emotions, and then they might come back later. And then you have others that are more like me that like jump in and try to fix it, right? They try to edit the paper and just like take everything down and they like go after it. I like to fix problems. Is anyone else a fixer, you know, in the relationship? I actually had to have cues with Ashley and I, when my wife, when we were in premarital counseling on our own, that our counselor talked about, you need to ask a question. Is this something that you want fixed right now or something you want me to listen to right now? Because I would just, Ashley would start sharing with me what was going on and, and I would just like jump into like problem solving the situation and I didn't know that she just wanted me to listen, right? Like that, that was it. She just wanted me to listen because I was just trying to fix uh, and this came to kind of a climax this year recently, and I'll have a confession. Um, I coached a, a youth soccer team. Yeah? Is anyone, <laughs> and you know what I realized when I coached a youth soccer team? I'm no longer a soccer player. So I'm sitting there on like the sidelines, like, like trying everything to like hold myself in to like try to get the players. I'm like yelling, like, get the ball, like turn around, like run this way, do that. Like I'm trying everything to help them win the game because they uh, were, you know, like kind of off and on a little bit this season. Let's just put it that way. But it was like a moment of learning that I could not do anything other than the practice with them. Like all I had was practice and like coaching from the sidelines. But in the end, I couldn't fix the situation that a player totally wasn't paying attention and let someone run right by him and score the goal. I just couldn't. I couldn't do it. And it it, it kind of boils inside sometimes for some of us that are fixers because we want to do our best to solve problems. And I I kind of bring you into my emotional psyche for a minute, hopefully so that you can resonate, but then also so you can think about this concept for the church, that the church is not 
the Savior and why I want to talk a little bit about that. And you might be wondering yourself, Brian, what does this have to do with the scripture that you just read, which is super convoluted theology from the Apostle Paul? And this is why I love theology school, because I think it's so much more practical than we tend to take it, because the Apostle Paul's words, I think, have direct impact to how I coach the soccer team or to how I engage in my relationship with my spouse and to how I engage in the relationship with others. And I helped a, a group of people when I was the pastor in North Carolina. I was pastor of mission and evangelism. And so one of the things I did when I began that journey of being their pastor, of leading them out in mission, was we focused on the Apostle Paul and these words from the book of Romans. Apostle Paul, as some of you know from my conversations with you, is that he was started a number of churches. And he started a number of churches under this simple principle that all are welcome and included into God's story of love. So much so that he was seen radical by the Jewish Christians of the day because he said something that had never been said in the history of God's people ever, which was that you could be part of God's chosen people if you did not get circumcised and follow every rule of the Torah. And this was unfathomable to the Jews, that the Gentiles could be part of God's chosen people and not do what they were supposed to do. They understood that you could like convert and kind of go through that process, but you literally couldn't inherit the blessing that God has on the earth if you did not do what God told Abram and Sarai when they changed their names to Abraham and Sarah, is that they must follow the ways of God. And so Paul started these number of churches, and then he had in his midst these people, false teachers, as he called them, that were going through his churches and telling his people that they were wrong. And all of this makes direct implication to how you do outreach, right? You know, how you do mission and evangelism. But the, the, I'm joking with that. You can smile a little bit as a theology joke. Thanks for that. Uh, but like the idea is the Apostle Paul was adamant over and over again that they do not have to do anything. And Paul kept having to go back to Jerusalem to fix the problems of either bringing money to them or like the debates that he was having with the Christians in Jerusalem and some of the disciples that were there. And so he kept having to come back. He'd travel up to Greece and then travel back to Jerusalem, travel up through Asia Minor. And then his goal in life was to get to Rome. Like he really wanted to get to Rome. But he had to go back to Jerusalem yet again. But he heard that these false teachers were on the way. And so he decides to write out the heart of what he believes as the gospel. And he begins that within Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And what does he say at the beginning? That we have been reconciled, made right, through faith. Now, friends, I have a uh, we can go into some Greek. I'm going to save you from that, okay? I'm going to save you from the Greek. But I think there's a, a critical translation error that has been made in many of our Bibles, taking this information from my professor. So take it for what it's worth. And that's the idea that faith, that you have been reconciled by faith, is our faith, as opposed to the faith of Christ. 
The Bible, I think, in Greek lends itself more to say the faith of Christ than just faith in general or our faith. And that is so important for us because what it means is that we are made right by absolutely nothing that we have done. That we are made right through the work of Jesus. Period. And this might seem self-evident. Some of you are nodding your head and be like, yeah, preach it. You got it. And then others are like, well, Brian, you got to do some stuff though, right? And that uncomfort and disagreement that we have is the exact uncomfort and disagreement that the Apostle Paul was working against. And in fact, it has been an ongoing Christian debate throughout this story of our Christian faith. One of the earliest arguments between Christians was uh, that of St. Augustine. Anyone heard his name before? Maybe? Anyway, St. Augustine and this other guy, Pelagius. And they argued and argued back and forth on this understanding of works-based righteousness. Works-based righteousness. Augustine was clear and adamant that there is nothing any of us can do to save ourselves. And Pelagius was like, and... Augustine, we have to do some stuff. Like, you got to pray. You got to confess your sins. You got to do all of these different things. And Augustine was adamant that, no, if we could do it ourselves, what was the need for Christ? And if we could do it ourselves, we would go misguided and go all awry. Don't worry, Augustine won that battle. So if you're a self-achiever, you know, achiever and want to get everything, you know, do all this stuff, you're right. Well, Augustine won that battle, I'm sorry to say. And then did you know that there was another era that you probably have heard of a little bit more called the Reformation? Anyone ever heard of the Reformation? Or let me, Martin Luther? Anyone ever heard that? He, you know, you know, we have in our image, like he put this thesis up on the wall and he like hammered it, right? It's not quite as climactic as that, but it's kind of like that, that the Reformation was a time within the church where people started to question was the, like, did we have to do all the stuff that the religious leaders are telling us we had to do, right? Do you have to give penance, like pay money to get yourself out of purgatory, or do you have to find relics in order to, like, make your way into heaven? And, you know, Martin Luther, the beginning, one of the movers of the Reformation, he posted on the wall this thesis, and basically the premise of it was this, we are justified by faith justified by faith. It is an ongoing debate because we like to add stuff to what we feel like we need to accomplish in life. We like to add stuff that we need to do to fix our own plights. And we're really good at coming up with the stuff that you need to do, right? During Augustine's time, it was praying a certain way and actually fasting and doing other things like that. And during, you know, the Reformation time, it had to do with some of the stuff around like penance and, you know, paying your way. I forget the name of it. I'm not saying the right word. But anyway, paying your way out of purgatory and um, some of the other issues that they have. And then we do it today. We hear people do it today by telling people, you got to look this way, act this way, dress this way. And they might not say that, but what if you found a Christian that swore? Or what if you had a Christian that wore the wrong gender clothes? Or what if you have a Christian that mm, 
chose to not live the same lifestyle as us. I don't know what the list is, but we have the lists in our heads, right? It makes us uncomfortable that they're living out faith, but it's not, it doesn't seem right to us. Or they might say something like, I'm a Christian, but I don't know if I believe in the Bible. Or I'm a Christian, and I'm not sure some of these stories are real. We can add on those pieces, and it makes us uncomfortable. But where I kind of pushed my mission and outreach folks was, is I pushed them into seeing how that uncomfortability actually plays a way into how they engaged in outreach. Last week, we talked about how we are called to serve, right? To feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to visit the sick and in prison, to give water to the thirsty. But sometimes those gifts that we have come with, well, strings, you should say. But they're not bad strings. They're just strings that everyone should want, right? So what does it mean for us to help? What it means for us to help is to help someone who doesn't have a college education get a college education and get a car and, and to get a savings account and to do the things that we think you ought to do in life. And those things aren't bad, but there's something about like that way of living, that understanding of being whole, that carries this sort of, you got to do X, Y, Z with it. And we talked about this in North Carolina when we engaged with a nonprofit called the Community Empowerment Fund. And the Community Empowerment Fund did something very unique. They created these micro-grants for people in need, and their stipulation for the micro-grant was, what do you need with this money? It wasn't like a micro-grant for a deposit on their rent. It wasn't a micro-grant for their car. It was a micro-grant for them to identify what their need was. They had some classes that they wanted the partner, the people to participate. They called them partners to participate in, you know, financial you know, planning classes, some classes uh, you know, about managing your bank accounts and doing some of those things. But they began with this principle, though, in that journey, that ultimately the individual that is seeking the support knows what is best for them, that they can make that choice. And I use that as an example with my people with the mission and evangelism group that we were doing. Because I said, this is a step forward in Paul's theological conversation. Because if we think that people to be whole have to do X, Y, and Z, and so our help is conditional based on us leading them in that way, we think that ultimately we will save them from their plight that we need to be involved in that. But if we believe that they can do that in themselves, we're no longer the savior. If we think that they have the agency, that's a technical term for the ability to make their choices and determine their future, if they have the agency, then what do we do in that situation? And it was really uncomfortable for our mission and evangelism folks trying to figure out how they can serve without falling into the trap 
of being the Savior or needing to be the Savior. And I hope you can follow the logic a little bit, but the point was is that we can choose the trajectory for people or you can allow them to choose it for themselves. And when you allow them to choose it for themselves, it can be frustrating. Just like it is when I allow that youth soccer team to run out on the field and make all of their wrong choices that I cannot fix, right? Because they start making mistakes, but they also start doing their own thing with it. And how good of a coach would anyone be if they just scripted out every piece of the puzzle? How many of you have been watching Ted Lasso? Yeah? Okay. I know some of you have been watching. I got to get the reference in. I'm talking about soccer. Don't have the mustache. I'm sorry. Ted Lasso is a series on Apple Plus. I recommend it. It's really good. It was, came out during COVID and it kind of like, they said, talk about warmed the hearts of America's soul in the midst of like a down, depressing COVID times. It was just lighthearted. It wasn't like heavy and violence. It was just a quirky football coach that somehow got asked to coach or quirky American football college coach that somehow got asked to coach a premier football league team in England. And, you know, like they go through all sorts of ups and downs, but in the current season we're in, one of the things that leads them to success as a team was when they start to adopt a new way of playing, which was just kind of like free-for-all football. And no one wanted to do it because, you know, like you didn't fit into the midfielder, the striker, the defender. Like it just didn't fit because a defender could move up to the striker position as needed and a midfielder could move back. And it's kind of like this sloppy game of play. But like that's part of what makes this character, Ted Lasso, a good coach. Is that just when you think he's going to step in and correct the situation or should do that, he ends up making some weird analogy and a long story about, you know, how when he grew up and his grandpa's farm and, you know, whatever. But it all of a sudden makes sense that what he's doing is the same thing that he put up on the wall of his locker room when he started. And that was believe, right? He put this phrase up there. And he's believing in the players to make the choices that they're going to make. While we were enemies, while we were weak, while we were making the wrong choices, God places God's faith in us. And that gives us access, the Apostle Paul says, to all the riches of God's glory. That while we were making the wrong decisions, friends, how about this? I'm going to read it one more time. Can you listen to this for me? Therefore, we have been justified by the faith of Christ, and we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, through whom we've been given access to the grace in which we now stand. Not only that, but we can boast in our sufferings that when things go wrong, we can be happy because if you make a wrong decision, guess what? Nothing has changed in your salvation. 
If we hand out money and the people that run with it make a wrong decision, what's the real problem there? I mean, yeah, we can talk about wise and unwise decisions. I'm not trying to say we should be unwise at all times. But we are not the saviors. That God calls us to trust that all of us, individually and the world around us, have been given this thing called God's grace through God's belief in us. Our task, share that belief with others. To let them experience it. Let them feel that. Let them find the hope in it. And so one of the things that I talked about with my mission and outreach team, and this kind of brings us full circle with what it means to be the church, is that what it means to be the church is to go out and to serve. But in the end, our goal is not to save people. Our goal is not to fix the world's situations. I'm afraid to say, but Jesus says there will always be those that are hungry. There will always be those that are going through pain and hard times. Our goal is to go out and help be part of the mending, but we also do it with this thing called the church. That what we realize is that it's not just about fixing people's plight, it's about inviting them into a relationship where they believe in themselves. And at its best, friends, that's the church. A community of love and support where you can find a place for you to live into all the quirkiness that God made you as. That you can experience God's love for you as an individual you can give that love back to God. That we can love each other enough that we feel comfortable to be in our own skin and our own bodies and our own thoughts around one another. And as we go out and serve the world, we don't just feed the hungry, clothe the naked, but we also help them experience the church the community of love and support regardless of what you believe, do, or say. The love of God that comes to you through God's faith in us, it's not earned. The mission of the church is not to be the savior because thank God we have one already. The mission of the church is to allow that savior to transform our lives by love of one another and to transform the world around us. So let us go from this place and be the church, not because the world needs a savior, they have it already. But let's help all experience the wholeness that can come when the church is doing what it ought to be the best, which is loving God, loving one another, and loving those around us well. I invite you to pray with me. Holy and gracious God, we give thanks that you trust us enough to fail. And sometimes, for many of us, it's hard to trust others enough to fail.
Let us be a people that offer love freely, that make space, and that also follow into this rhythm of being the church, of accepting your free-flowing love, free-flowing love to us, of learning to love each other and welcoming those who are lonely and to serve the world around us and meeting its needs, but also to remember that in the end, your Son, Jesus Christ, is our Savior. And thank God that he has done the good work already. Amen.